Hey everyone, this is Jonathan Capehart. Welcome to Cape Up. This week's guest, Fred Hochberg, chairman of the Export-Import Bank. It's a little-known federal bank that helps American businesses compete on the world stage. But there have been some issues. First, Congress stalled the bank's reauthorization. We were actually lapsed for five months and four days. Not that I was counting every <laughs> single day. Then Congress found another obstacle to gum up the works. So we do not have a quorum today. Find out why that's a huge deal. Then you'll want to hear how Hochberg, one of the highest-ranking openly gay members of the Obama administration, uses his travels to talk to LGBT groups at home and abroad. Oh, did you know his late mother is the catalog queen Lillian Vernon? You can find out the advice she gave him growing up right now. Fred, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. Thanks for coming in. I'm happy to be here. Okay, so you're the chairman of the Export-Import Bank. What on earth is that? The Export-Import Bank is the trade bank in the United States. Many countries have them. There are about 85 of these around the world. Germany, France, China, Korea. Some countries like China have two or three of them, in fact. What we do is we finance U.S. exports to support U.S. jobs, we're all about U.S. jobs, when either one of two conditions are present. One, credit isn't available. I was recently in Sri Lanka, Burma, uh, Myanmar, uh, Bangladesh, India, countries where frequently it's not easy to get a bank loan to do a major project or to sell small business goods. So in those markets where it's very difficult to get financing, we can step in and provide a government guarantee so that financing comes forward. That's one. Two, Frequently, we have U.S. companies and U.S. workers competing against foreign companies and their workers. So, so there's a level playing field. If we're companies buying solar panels in India, for example, they can buy them from China or the United States primarily. We make sure there's a financing package that levels the playing field. So when the Indian buyer is choosing, they will choose the best solution, not because China offers financing and we don't. So it's about jobs. It's about a level playing field. And it's about making sure that in tight markets or markets where it's hard to get the capital to put in capital goods, we stand ready to provide a guarantee. And we do that at a fee, and we actually make a profit. And what is this fee? Just like we pay points on a mortgage, you pay points for that. Or in case we make a direct loan or provide credit insurance, you pay a premium to us. So we collect fees. We put aside money for a loan loss reserve like any bank would do. Congress... Uh, allocates about $100 million uh, of the money we raise to run the bank. And the rest actually is profit, what's just any business. Sales minus cost equals profit. We turn that profit over to the taxpayers of the U.S. Treasury every year. And in fact, just a few weeks ago, we sent $284 million in profit to the taxpayers, to our U.S. Treasury. Wait, so if I got this right, you said Congress gives the Export-Import Bank $100 million. They allow us to retain, of the, of the money we re- generate in, in fees and income, Okay. they say they essentially allocate, they appropriate $100 million that we're able to retain to run the bank. Got it. Got it. For, but, it's, but it's money that we've generated is what I'm trying to say. It's out of the funds we've actually generated. Right. But I found it interesting that you mentioned this $100 million that Congress allow, allows you to keep to operate the bank, and yet you just sent back, what, $284 million. 
that sounds to me like a pretty good return on investment. Well, yeah, yeah right. Yeah. So why <laughs> why have you and the Export Import Bank been catching hell from Congress? It took how long did it take? for the XM Bank to be reauthorized by Congress. That's the first thing I want to talk to you All about. Right. So we were actually lapsed for five months and four days. Not that I was counting every <laughs> single day, but five right. months and four days that we were unavailable to make any new loans or commitments to help small businesses export or large companies meet their competition overseas. Remind the listeners of what the holdup was. Well, let's remember, first of all, we had a vast an overwhelming majority of Congress voted with us and believes we should be there. But there was a small and vocal minority that was opposed to the bank, and they were able to stop action for several months until we were able to overcome that with several votes and get reauthorized. And now we're reauthorized through 2019. In order for the XM Bank to approve any deal, for lack of a better word, that's greater than $10 million dollars, you need a quorum. You need three members. You're supposed to have five. You need three in order to approve such a deal. But last I saw, um, Mark McWaters, who was nominated by President Obama, was not approved by Senator Shelby of Alabama for one reason or another. And so that, at least last I saw, has prevented the XM Bank from having a quorum. So, since I couldn't find anything on the Google, clear this up. Sure. What happened with Mr. McWaters? Where's his nomination? Do you have a quorum? So, we do not have a quorum today. Currently, the board consists of the vice chairman, vice chairwoman, and myself. We need a third to have a quorum. Um, three members of the board are of the president's party, and two are not of the president's party. So, Leader McConnell, Majority Leader McConnell, sent to the president a recommendation from Mark McWaters. President nominated Mark McWhorters in January. He's not been able to get a hearing, not been able to have a hearing by the banking committee, which is the first step in getting a confirmation. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell is the one who proposed Mark McWhorters to President Obama to be nominated to the XM Bank board. Senator McConnell is a Republican, and yet he is being held up by a Republican senator from Alabama. That's correct. How how <laughs> I just <laughs> I, I'm sort of I'm just mystified here. Well, it is a little you, confusing. You would think that someone from their own party would right. therefore sail through because it was recommended by Senator McConnell. He actually uh, either went to college or is a classmate of Jeb Hensling, the House Financial Services Chairman. So this is clearly someone who is like-minded. Right. We're and not talking about like would, a wild-eyed liberal right. here. We would say that I would, I, and I've met Mr. McWhorter, very responsible. He serves on the Credit Union Administration Board right now, but certainly a very like-minded person. Is that also a pre- isn't that also That's a presidential also, yes, appointment? That also is. So he's currently, he's been confirmed already by the Senate for that job. So he's a known entity. So in this time, oh, in, in, so it was five months and four days that it took to get the bank reauthorized. How, do you have a, a month, day, week, hour count on on how long you haven't had a quorum? Well, we have l- lost our quorum uh, July 20th, 2015. Okay. That's more than a year. Well over a year. So we're hopeful that we can address this in the lame duck session um, and get back to fully being operational in December. But that's obviously we don't know the answer to that. Okay. So now as a result of not having a quorum, which would allow you to approve – 
projects that cost more than $10 million. What projects have been held up or more worrisome, what projects have gone away as a result or been lost as a result? Well, we've got a pipeline today of over 20 transactions, over 30 transactions above $20 billion in total that are stacked up like uh, planes at uh, National Airport of LaGuardia circling. Mm -hmm. And the only difference is we are working on those transactions. We're underwriting them, doing environmental studies, getting the work done. But we have no board to consider them. So they are backed up right now. You said t- uh, over 30 uh, transactions that are north of $20 billion, $20 billion in, total. in total. Oh, all of them together, it's yes. $20 billion. Because for a minute there, I thought I was. I was <laughs> Not sti- each. Like, you know, um, giving the wrong statistic about the quorum needed right. to approve a deal above $10 million. Okay. But you've got. 30 project, $20 billion worth in of, in, in total, that's just sort of circling Yeah, now some of there. those will take uh, two years because sometimes those projects aren't, they're, they're not all going to be done tomorrow. But my point is, we've got a deep pipeline. We've encouraged companies up overseas that are looking for financing to send us an application, let us get working. I'm confident, since I know the Senate, I know the House wants us to be operational. So I'm trying to get all those done. So as soon as we have a board or a quorum, we can get to work and start and make sure more Americans are working, more Americans are getting these export-related jobs. I'm glad you brought that up because I was just about to ask you about Americans who might be listening to this and they're thinking, oh, this export-import bank, you know, we're worried about jobs over here. What are they doing about that? Well, I'll give you an example. Last year, in, in our short year that just ended, our, our year ends September 30th, as every government agency, we supported about just over 50,000 jobs that were directly supported by the work of the Export-Import Bank financing. Give you a perspective, two years ago, the last time we actually had a fully functioning board and operated for 12 months, we did 164,000 jobs. So off by two-thirds this year, partly in large part because we do not have a board and do not have a quorum. The other thing that comes to mind is trade. I sometimes think that the way it's talked about is in a way that is not exactly helpful to the electorate. What's the what's the one thing, or maybe three things, that people should keep in mind when it comes to the United States and trade and jobs from your perspective at the bank? Well, one, exports create many, many high-paying jobs. Uh, the statistics, the data shows up to 18% more higher wages than other jobs because they tend to be more innovative products, services, which do a lot of service exports. So one, they're very good jobs. Two, at the Export-Import Bank, as I said, just the, our financing alone last year supported over 50,000 jobs. Uh, two years ago, 164,000. So a lot of jobs, not just good paying jobs, but a lot of good paying jobs. And three, what we have today is much more globalized supply chains. More and more companies are assembling products from components they buy both locally and abroad. So the key thing is trade is important to keep our economy going and to keep our to keep our economy going, keeping jobs flowing. And we may be less trade dependent than many other countries, but that we're not trade independent. Mm-hmm. And you've been in this job a long time. Is it true that you're the longest serving 
chairman of the export import as of yesterday as of, as of, <laughs> as of yesterday right. so anyway this the month of october I became the longest serving chairman and that's how many years uh over seven just just about seven and a half and this isn't your first government job what is it about the export import bank that uh, made you want to stay in a job. <laughs> well, first of all, this is the best job I've ever had, and I thank President Obama on a regular basis when I wake up in the morning that I have this job. I This has been a great job. Why is it a great job? Because of all the jobs we support and create. And the fact is that I can go visit companies large and small and meet people who have a job, support their family, have a good livelihood because they're producing innovative products and services and selling them overseas. And that's exciting. It's thrilling to find the things that we sell and manufacture from uh, wine we export to beer to pickles to satellites to locomotives to solar panels to renewable energy. I mean, it's so vast, the amount of products and services that we export. That's an exciting window on the entire global economy. Um, so that, that gets me up every single day. Mm -hmm. and, and before I move on to the next thing, you just said something that made me re reminded me of a question. Um, are there any particular states where the XM, XM Bank is really, really active? Like, is it Oregon? Is it South Carolina? Where the bank, like, if you were to go to those states and say, hey, have you heard of the XM Bank? Go to business people like, oh, yeah, they've been incredible. They've, they've helped me out with X, Y, or Z. Well, uh, probably our biggest single city is Houston. We do a lot in the oil and gas business. You know, we're, we're some of the leaders in terms of technology and oil and gas. So we do a lot of services and technological exports out of the Houston area. So I go there on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. um, I'm heading out to California next week. Uh, that is a, a very important state from the point of aerospace. Um, SpaceX is a company there in terms of satellite technology, aerospace, renewable energy, all in the California region. That's a very strong state for exports. So you've got Texas, you've got California. Washington State, um, where most of the Boeing aircraft are manufactured, along with South Carolina, also a very strong export market. You know, in, in commercial aircraft, but 80% of what Boeing makes is exported. So, I mean, they have, they have a giant export footprint. So those are also very strong states. But Michigan is a strong state for exports. Mm -hmm. uh, Ohio, um, where manufacturing is done, tends to be places that demand U.S. products. What people forget, Jonathan, we're the second largest exporting country in the entire world, only beaten by China. And a little over a dozen years ago, no country exported more goods than we did. So I, people often think, oh, we don't make anything. But we make a lot of things, and so much so that we're the second largest exporter in the whole world. Well, well, what about those people who say, well, why do we even have this bank? This bank is just a, it's a private piggy bank. It's, it's part of the Washington corruption, yada, 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 blah, blah, blah. What do you say to that, to that kind of criticism? You know, we have the best private sector financial system in the world. And the private and we our exporters, our companies rely on us less proportionally than the exporters in places like Europe or Korea or China and so forth. However, our private sector can't do everything. And we're brought in by the private sector. So if um, JP Morgan Chase or Citibank or HSBC, a customer goes to them and needs funding. If they can't do it on their own, they will say, let's bring Exim Bank in. With that guarantee, we can make this loan work. So we're brought in by the private sector when either the risk or frequently the, the term, 
Banks increasingly can't, don't want to make loans much longer than five or eight years. We can provide loans as long as 18 years for renewable energy. So in those markets, we tend to be much more competitive because it's very difficult to get long tenor, long-term loans uh, for in many markets. Okay. Now, this job, which you said is the best job, best job you've ever had, is sort of the the right now the culmination of other jobs that you've had. You were the deputy administrator of the small business administrator administration, but for a hot second, <laughs> you were the highest ranking openly gay federal official in the administration of President George W. Bush. How'd that happen? Uh, That's a very good question. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, I was in the Clinton administration, President Bill Clinton, that is, um, as the deputy administrator of the Small Business Administration. You may recall in 2000, we had a rather protracted election. Uh, and as a result um, of the 35 days it took to resolve that election results, uh, every agency was asked to leave one person behind to ensure a smooth transition because the transition period was abbreviated by almost seven, five, six weeks. So I stayed on uh, under President Bush. As a result, I worked in the Bush administration for I think it's about 10 or t- 10 days or so, and I was the acting administrator of the SBA and therefore probably – was the highest ranking openly gay person in the Bush administration. Well, let's keep talking about the gay part, because for as long as I've known you... <laughs> I've been gay? <laughs> you, you've been gay. <laughs> well, you've been, you've been openly gay. Um, uh, we, first, we first met in New York almost 20 years ago. I think at least 20 years. Uh, I think you interviewed me in the format 20 years ago. Uh, yes, uh, yes, that's right. We did at something... At the at center. The, at, yes, at the Gay and, Lesb- the gay and Lesbian Center, or the center, uh, in New York. And being openly gay in the federal government has changed light years from even the time you were the deputy administrator in the Bill Clinton administration, even to right now. What's like? Talk about that. Well, I think when I went through confirmation, uh, Senate confirmation in 1997, 98, uh, I was held up for seven months um, and... Um, it was not put in the press, but it was openly discussed. Well, he's a gay candidate, and I don't know if we want to do that. So I think that there were clearly sidebar conversations that came back to me that that was a factor in the delay of my confirmation. Certainly, it was a factor in Jim Hormel's, who was never confirmed this uh, ambassador, ambassador to Luxembourg's right? recess appointment. Um, and that's changed enormously under President Obama. We have. Um, many, many people at all levels of government. We have the Secretary of the Army, openly gay man. Eric Fanning. That's unimaginable. Uh, at one point, Eric Fanning, we have six or seven openly gay uh, ambassadors who have been appointed by President Obama and a number of career openly gay and lesbian uh, ambassadors, um, people at the department, at the Exim Bank, at uh, agency after agency throughout the government. So I think that President Obama want, has always wanted an administration that reflected America, in, in gender, in race, in religion, in sexual orientation. And I've been very proud to be part of that. So when you um, travel around, I mean, you're an openly gay federal official and you're traveling around the world. Clearly, I mean, they've got the Google all over so people can easily look you up and, and find out your history and your story. Have you noticed or experienced any kind of homophobia 
when you're in your doing your official duties? All of President Obama's team has really been able to help change that view of of who what is what it is to be an American. I mean, we have, uh, and when I travel. Uh, as part of my goal, even I was in Pakistan recently, and I met with the LGBT community in Pakistan. Uh, the U.S. Embassy set that up. You know, both Secretary Clinton and followed by Secretary Kerry at the State Department have been very supportive of saying human rights are LGBT rights, and they're one and the same, and we need to make that part of our stance when we're overseas. So I have met with... Um, gone out of my way, particularly meet a lot of women entrepreneurs in those countries, which frequently don't have the same opportunities they have in our country. And I met with a lot of number of LGBT business people and activists in those countries because I want to make sure they have a voice as well. They have a voice, but in some of these countries, they can they even be visible? I mean, well, how, how, no, I think we're often, depending on the country, more careful where we hold these meetings so that they don't feel vulnerable or in any way exposed. But that's pretty incredible that even if you do a, a cloak-and-dagger meeting, that there are people who are eager to get out there and meet you and and talk to you and get advice from you and and, and counsel. Well, it's it's very gratifying. I mean, I I've, I've met with the, our community in Mozambique and South Africa and uh, a number of places in Latin America. Uh, as I said, Pakistan, India, um, and I think it's important that as Americans and as gay people, we support brothers and sisters around the world. Do the, do the governments in these countries, Mozambique, India, Pakistan, uh, do they try to stand in your way or even express displeasure that you actually met with these groups? Uh, usually, well, I do it through our embassy, and I guess if, the, if there was a real problem, the embassy would, would back down, but they haven't. I mean, I would say, as again, back to giving um, uh, due credit to uh, Secretaries uh, Clinton and Kerry, They've made it part of the standard outreach that an ambassador does in these countries. Uh, they'll reach out to religious minorities, ethnic minorities, um, women, LGBT people. That's that's sort of part of what our State Department now does, our embassies do around the world, and it makes us proud to be Americans. Well, you're not just doing that overseas. You're you're doing that stateside. I see some. I saw somewhere that you had a meeting with the mayor of Charlotte, uh, North Carolina. Uh, which we all know North Carolina is going through the the insanity of its so-called bathroom bathroom bill and uh, what's it, HB2 HB2 well I met with the mayor uh, we did too we spent most of the day frankly meeting with business people who mm-hmm. want to export and I want to be supportive Charlotte's a very strong export market and as part of that we then met with the LGBT community later in the afternoon to say okay what else can we do you know uh, Attorney General Loretta Lynch has been and the entire administration has been fully behind pushing back on that law, making sure people are treated fairly and equally. They're not standing alone. And so when the mayor and I met with the community was to make sure, A, we convey that message. And if there's any message they wanted me to convey back to Washington, I was happy to do so as well. Now, Fred, you're also the founder, and this I didn't know. Like I said, we've known each other a long time, but here's something I didn't I know. You're still the have fa- secrets. <laughs> you, you're the founder of the David Bonnet LGBT Leadership Fellows Scholarship at Harvard's K School. Well, what one, is it? Who is David? Yeah, who is David <laughs> Bonnet? Am I pronouncing his name? David right? Bonnet. Bonnet. David Bonnet. David Bonnet is uh, a Californian. Has a foundation. Uh, been very successful in sort of a new technology, internet, and so forth. Um, I think GeoCities was the company that he founded, 
And uh, this is a program I – Kennedy School runs a number of executive leadership programs. Uh, for, they're three-week programs, intensive, where you're there for the three weeks, work 20, 20 days out of the three weeks or so. And uh, they have one on, for state and local officials who want to improve their skills, hone their skills, or prepare themselves for higher office. I decided to go myself one year to test it out. I was very impressed with the program and then said we ought to really do this for the – LGBT community because there were very few, this is in the late 90s, there were even fewer LGBT openly gay people in elected office, in appointed office. So I started the scholarship program at the Victory Fund. In the first few years, we would each year, I'd put some money in, we'd, I'd raise from three or four or five different people, and we'd send four or five, six people each year to the, to the as a fellow. Um, we've now in total sent over 135 people have gone through the program. Since year? about 2000. Mm-hmm. And actually, I would say, the last I checked, the Victory Fund and the Victory Institute is the largest single source of scholarships for that program across the country. So, uh, and they, the importance of that program is we give LGBT leaders, they may be city council people or school board representatives, the skills and tools to actually do their jobs better and to also aspire to higher office. And they're in the classroom with... Fire chiefs, police chiefs, heads of hospitals, heads of uh, mobile health units who are working in state and local government. So we do two things. We give them training. And the other 75 people in the classroom get an exposure as a peer to a lesbian, gay, bisexual person, transgender person, and see them in a different light. They work side by side for three weeks, and it changes the rest of the classroom as well. So... Um I can't let you go without talking about someone who is very important to you, um, huge in your life, uh, Lillian Vernon, your mom who passed away. It hasn't been a year yet, has it? Uh, Christmas time. Christmas time. So almost a year, a year ago, woman who started her own small business at her kitchen table that grew into an enormous uh, catalog business. And... What are the what are the three things you learned from her growing up that shaped and continue to shape your worldview today? Uh, one is uh, you need to have irrepressible energy. Uh, my mother used to say uh, in, in her business, in the catalog business, you need a, a good eye and good feet uh, <laughs> because you got to spend a lot of time on your feet, traveling, looking, finding things. So you need high energy. Two, I would say you have to not be afraid of hard work. Uh, you know, it, it, Mayor Bloomberg always says it's amazing that people who work hard often get lucky. Uh, so working hard is really important. And if you're in business, um, and, and same as running a federal agent, you have to mind costs. You know, we all have to be able to, to be able to deliver a product or a service at a price. So when I run the Export-Import Bank, you know, we have to be able to deliver a good service, deliver it to our customers, and also do it in a cost-effective manner. And that's how we send $284 million to the taxpayers each year. I love how I, I ask you this great this great personal question, and you pivot right on back to the Export-Import Bank, which is highly appropriate because it gives me the perfect way to say thank you very much, Fred Hochberg, or as I like to call him, Mr. Chairman. <laughs> thank you. Thanks for having me on the program. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. You know what? Do me a favor. Subscribe and then rate and review us. 
I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. Jay.